Welcome to Abstract Factory, a podcast. I'm Mark Wunsch. I'm Casey Kolderup. This is episode two, Identity. Do you remember when we used to work together? Yeah, it wasn't so long ago. No, it really wasn't. But, I mean, it, it feels like a long time. The reason I bring it up is because when I got to uh, to Guilt in 2011, I had known you online for a while, and I discovered there was something of a cult of personality around you at the company. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There was a Facebook group based on your name. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was the Wunch Bunch. Mm-hmm. You were the co-host of Guilt TV. I was. As a software engineer for Guilt Group, I'm not really sure why I'm here. You were in our career and recruiting materials? Yeah, I, I don't know how that happened, but yeah, sure. And uh, you gave a bunch of talks internally, externally. You were somewhat well-known for that. Yeah, yeah, I like giving talks at conferences occasionally. Yeah, so as someone who was fairly well-known, it wasn't, I guess, too surprising in hindsight that one day... A Twitter account appeared called Fake Mark Wunsch. Yeah, um, it was a little strange. It was a very uncanny feeling to know that I had a Twitter account that was a parody of me. And I, I you know, I don't have many followers on Twitter, or at least certainly not enough to justify a parody account. So, yeah, I mean, I think the people who do follow you, you know, especially within their company, it, it seemed. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but at any rate, it's, it, it obviously became important enough that someone thought to do this. And one thing I thought was interesting, standing on the sidelines of all of this, uh, is that you could actually tell there were multiple people piloting that Twitter account. Yeah, it became really obvious because what Fake Mark Wunsch did was sort of like almost like a horse ebook. So it would take a tweet that I t- t- tweeted, and it would sort of change a word or change a noun. Uh, and that was really funny. But then there were times when the tone of fake Mark Wunsch would just really dramatically shift and it would be like a cheap, like, hashtag, you know. Right. I don't use hashtags. Sure. Except ironically. Yeah. That's, and even then. <laughs> it was obvious to me that it had many different people's, I guess, ideas about what my Twitter was. So as that story continued, some of the people who were running that account thought that it would be a good idea in order to throw everyone off the trail about who was doing it, that they should accuse me of being the person to run the fake Mark Wunsch account. Mm-hmm. There was a manhunt for, you know, for me. And I, you know, sort of a, a passing sort of hobby was to try to figure out, you know, who's running this thing. And I thought it was you because some of the tweets were pretty clever. Well, but it's funny because as you said, there were some tweets on there that were just, that were not particularly funny. And I, I almost found it kind of insulting that people would accuse me of running that Twitter account. Well, I I can understand that. I found it insulting that there was a Twitter (laughs) account that was parodying me. That was not funny. So what I did Mm-hmm. Was I started my own parody account? Yes, for you at not Mark Wunsch. Correct. So I was actually pretty straightforward about not being you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decided with that Twitter account, I would prove that I could tweet 
a better fake Mark Wunsch than at fake Mark Wunsch. Yeah, and there were times that I thought, oh, maybe I should just hang up, give up on this whole Twitter thing and just let you be my Twitter. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that experiment, I feel like, proved my point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then within the week, YAF Mark yeah. Wunsch appeared. Yet another fake Mark Wunsch. And that account didn't seem to even really be trying. So I guess I was thinking about this, and it occurred to me that suddenly there were at least four Mark Wunches on Twitter if not more, maybe ones we didn't even know about. And I'm sure it felt weird to you. And in hindsight, it was it was a strange thing, but it's a thing that I've seen happen around other companies. I've seen startups where everyone has a parody account that one other person is running yeah. within the startup. I think GroupMe was doing it a few years ago. And I guess it, it came up um, because I was thinking about this in context of what happened with Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> and Newsweek. Yeah. Newsweek put out a cover story as part of their return to print in which they unmasked the actual Satoshi Nakamoto, who they revealed was someone who was actually named Satoshi Nakamoto, was previously thought to be a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And um, the reporter did investigative journalism and discovered someone that she had decided was Satoshi Nakamoto. And and the ar- that article was interesting because I thought the journalism was good and I think she made a compelling case for why this guy Dorian, you know, why she thought this was him. And in the article, there's sort of a a scenario that happens where uh, Dorian says, I'm not involved in that anymore, which gives the impression that he was at one point involved in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's come out since saying, I I'm, I have no idea what Bitcoin is, and I didn't know mm-hmm. what it was until this article. And yeah, uh, last time we talked, we actually discussed the concept that an email address was almost an identity. Mm-hmm. How a person identifies themselves on the internet, at the very least. So I wanted to think about that and think about what an identity means, yeah. especially in a world where our physical presence matters maybe not less but in a different context at different times than our non-physical presence you know what what is it that makes us want to find satoshi nakamoto in the physical world when the only evidence of his existence is purely virtual here's a question what does that have to do with at fake mark lunch well i guess i'm what i'm trying to get at is once we establish who a person is and connect that to something they do on the internet. How do we ever decide that that person and what they identify as has anything to do with the other things they've done (laughs) and the rest of how they spend their future? Yeah. Another way of thinking about this is when you are online, you are in a a number of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So I'm on Twitter I also write code. I write code personally. I write it for my company. When I'm on Twitter, I represent myself, I think. I don't think I represent my company. but And switching between all of those contexts and yet maintaining authorship of all of my works, I, I think is hard to maintain. Right. Well, and, and drawing strings between all of the threads, between all of those pieces 
establishes who Mark Wunsch is across all of those contexts. But there's nothing to say that the at Mark Wunsch on Twitter is Mark Wunsch short of the fact that I have spoken to you or I had spoken to you via IRC or email or other other ways, other forms of communication. And the person that I had decided was Mark Wunsch already told me this mm-hmm. is the Twitter account that I use. How do you right. know that I'm Mark Wunsch, software engineer, host of the podcast Abstract Factory? I don't. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, it's interesting about Satoshi Nakamoto is that it's one thing to have a name. You know, there's lots of Mark Wunches. There's me. There's the Coral Reef photographer, Mark Wunch. But we're more than just a name, obviously, because people are named the same thing. And Satoshi Nakamoto is just a name. Mm-hmm. So then we move one step beyond that, which is an email address, which is, you know, a way to send information to you, you know, to the Casey Calderup that's sitting across from me right now. And maybe that's good enough. But how do you know, you know, if you pick a Satoshi Nakamoto out of a hat, if you send an email to Satoshi Nakamoto at gmail.com, mm-hmm. I don't know who that is. How do you know that you're sending your message to the right person? How do you know that when you come to someone's door in a suburb of California and say, you are the Satoshi Nakamoto that created Bitcoin, that you're right? Obviously, Newsweek felt that they had enough evidence to support that theory. And to stake their entire relaunches reputation on it in a lot of ways. But, I mean, it's funny, too, because when you think about it, even if he claims in response, yes, I am that person, it would take more work to verify that that was true. <laughs> and in in game theory, when you talk about a poker game and there are six people at the table, you can say it's a six-player game, but you actually don't know that any two people at that table are not collaborating right? in a way that would essentially make it a five-player game or a four-player game or... You can narrow it down to just saying, well, it's you against everyone else. And while we don't know what the reasoning behind it would be, it's entirely possible that Satoshi Nakamoto in California is not the Satoshi Nakamoto who wrote Bitcoin, but he could still claim to be. And maybe they had agreed that he would claim to be the two Satoshi Nakamotos in question for whatever reason. At some point, the process of establishing an identity and saying that someone is who they say they are or who you say they are has to be a level of trust that the community decides is enough. And in some communities, that level of trust is not necessarily very high because it doesn't matter. The The stakes are not very high. People could be friends for years without ever requiring each other to show them their birth certificates. Um, but when it comes time to collaborate or to write code or to do things professionally, that verification of identity becomes more important and the level of trust needed to establish that becomes more stringent. Yeah. As we do work online using an avatar, how do you verify that the person you're talking to is who they say they are? Uh, That's probably the biggest part of this Satoshi Nokomoto thing is when you have an online identity with no physical presence, how could you possibly prove anything about that person. Right. Well, let's talk about cryptography. Okay. Because cryptography 
is entirely centered around the idea of the verification of someone's identity. You are communicating with someone who you trust. So if you and I wanted to communicate and send a message to each other that nobody else could read, how would we do that? We'd encrypt it? <laughs> sure. So here's what we would do. We would make keys. Uh, I have a key and you have a key. We've shared that key. It's a copy of the same key. Okay. And we have used our keys to encrypt something. Either of us have the ability to then unlock it. Right. So what goes wrong? What can happen? Well, if someone else got the key, they could read anything that they intercepted that we were sending to each other. That's right. And that seems bad. That is bad. So what I just described was symmetric key cryptography. There's also something called public key cryptography. And I should say at this point that I am not a cryptographer. I'm not an expert in security. But this is interesting and it is important. And public key cryptography drives a lot of the internet communication. It's how we, when things are secure and you feel warm and fuzzy because you see a padlock icon, it's because there's some sort of public key cryptography going on, hopefully. So how does public key cryptography work? And how does it reduce what you just said, which is the idea of someone else getting a hold of the password? Well, it works like this. When I create a, instead of creating one key, I create a pair of keys that are complementary to each other. And I say that one is the public key and one is the private key. The private key is mine. I'm going to hide it away. Only I have access to it. But the public key I'll give to anybody. You can have it. Anybody can have it. And if you want to send me a message, what you'll do is encrypt something with my public key. Because the only thing that can decrypt it is my private key, which you know only I have. Because it's private. Right. So but you can give the public key to literally anybody. You can anybody. post it on your website. I post my public key online, actually. It's on the internet. So I can communicate with you, encrypt it, if you give me your public key. And I'll give you my public key and you can communicate with me. Now, here's the problem. Let's introduce something new, which is since anybody has my public key and they can send me a message, how do I know it's them that's sending me the message? Right. If you give me, if I get a public key for Casey Calderup and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to send Casey a, a message. I'm going to encrypt this with his public key and he'll be able to decrypt it. Mm -hmm. How do I know that that Casey Calderup is going to be the one receiving it? How do I know that that public key is tied to you? Right. So there's a level of trust. I don't know who's sending me messages, and I don't know who I'm sending messages to. I just have a key and know that somewhere else there's a, another part of that. Sure. So this introduces another level to uh, public key cryptography. And all of this is, you know, in the standard umbrella of PGP, pretty good privacy which is a, a standard. Mm -hmm. open, there's something called OpenPGP. And its implementation is called GPG, which is GNU Privacy Guard. So what I can do then is I can sign the message. So what I'm going to do to send you a message, I have your public key. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sign the message with my private key. I'm going to basically make some sort of uh, cryptographic hash that says, yes, this message was sent by me and you have my public key, you can then verify that the message that you got from me came from me. 
because the only person who could have signed it is me, is the owner of the public key that you have. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I think so. Right. It's um, it's tough. So uh, just to to wrap everything in a terribly perilous metaphor, we want to place something in a lockbox. We could do this a couple of ways. I could. We could both have the same key mm. that opens the lockbox. Problem is, anybody can have access to the key. Right. So do I do? I instead give you a lockbox and everybody a lockbox. And if I wanted to send you a message, only I have the key to all of these lockboxes and I put it in that. You know that the only person who could put something in the lockbox is me. Is you. That makes more sense. Yes. Okay. So you have verified that uh, the person sending the message is who they say they are. All they've said about themselves is that they have a public key and all, that's all you have of theirs. And they can sign things and you can verify, mm, yes, this, this is the person who sent me this message. How do you know that that person is that person? Right? I could create a public key and I could say, the public key that I just created is for Satoshi Nakamoto. And I can use that key and I can say, I'm Satoshi Nakamoto and I can prove it because I have his private key. Right. So in addition to just having someone's public key and being able to verify the documents that they send, how do you trust someone? Right. I mean, I could I could go online tonight. Mm -hmm. I could purchase markwunch.guru. Okay. The yeah. Domain name. I could okay. put a new public key up on that site. I could go to notmarkwunch, the Twitter account, and I could put a link to markwunch.guru and mm -hmm. say, hey, everyone. This is my hilarious, ironic Twitter account where I claim not to be myself. <laughs> right. Also, please go to my website and get my new public key. Yeah. At, th at that point, whoever has chosen to trust not Mark Wunsch, probably a foolish person, but still, could believe that the person on the other end of that public key is you, the person they've met or the person they've known or right. talked to. So there has to be a way to establish trust. So we've talked about signing messages, but I can also sign your key. And what I can do is say, I know that that Casey Calderup, who owns this key, who claims ownership of this public key, I vouch for him. And not only do I vouch for him, but I'll vouch for him so much that I will sign his key. And now, if you want to communicate with that Casey Calderup, and you don't know him, but you know me, you can look at the signatures on that key and say, oh, Mark Wunsch vouched for him. Mark Wunsch is a great guy an upstanding citizen, and therefore I can trust Casey Calderup. And this concept in cryptography is called a web of trust. So you don't know who you're communicating with, but you might know someone who they have communicated with, and you create this network of people. But really, it all comes down to meeting and verifying that someone is who they say they are, usually offline, almost always offline, and people do what are called key signing parties. Where they go and uh, they get in, into a small dark room with computers and they sign public keys. So I guess I have one question for you that I've been thinking about while trying to understand all of this stuff. We've talked about the idea that if someone has access to your email account, they can in some ways claim to be you. And in a lot of ways, PGP and GPG give you an extra layer of security in a way to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Yes. 
But if someone has access to your private key, they can essentially do the same thing. Yes. So why is it more secure to do it via private keys than via a strong password on an email account? The answer to that is that a password can be brute forced. A private key, it's not feasible to do that. Okay. But a private key can easily be stolen. Because a key exists as data on a disk somewhere. Yes. And I should say, you know, we're, we're talking at a very high level of abstraction. If you're interested in this stuff, go read the GPG handbook. Do some research. But you're right. A private key is not something you want to lose. The whole system is built around the idea that the private key remains private. There's one other thing which you alluded to, which is, you know, if, if you take over the not Mark Wunsch account and buy markwunsch.guru... I gotta get on, I gotta get on the new TLD train before. Quick, someone buy markwunch.bike. Someone buy markwunch. Uh, what are all the new ones? I don't even know. Markwunch.sexy. Markwunch.sunrise. Markwunch.photography. Markwunch.cool. Damn. Why would anyone buy that? <laughs> guru Guru is the best TLD though. Hey. We can agree on that. So, <laughs> so what pr- what makes it so that you say, oh, don't use that key? anymore. Don't use my old public key. This is my new one. And basically hijacking someone's identity. And one of the things that you can create is called a revocation certificate, where you can actually revoke a previous public key. And that's the right way to say, I am no longer using this key. Usually what happens when you create your key pair, you also create a revocation certificate that goes with it just in case you need to revoke it. And that you could put somewhere inconvenient. And if if you are saying something along the lines of, oh, don't worry about that key, I'm using this key, uh, you're not not doing it right. Because part of it is that you have to ensure trust of the receiver on the other end of the private key. So there's this product right now in like i guess it's a an alpha release it's built by a couple of the guys from okcupid which is pretty interesting mm-hmm. uh called keybase.io that you and i signed up for uh, yeah i've been sort of keeping an eye on it um and thought it was interesting and compelling keybase.io what it is is basically a wrapper around gpg around some of these cryptography tools and it presents it in this really nice web interface um, and you go through all the steps of creating a public key and a private key. And, and what you then do is use those keys to sign a message on your Twitter and GitHub accounts to prove that those Twitter and GitHub accounts belong to you, thereby establishing your identity. Um, and then you can, you know, I'll use air quotes, track your friends. And we'll talk about what that actually means in the context of Keybase. And I think in some ways what it also seems to offer is a suite of command line tools Mm -hmm. that kind of simplify and streamline some of the work required to generate and and send a message using GPG encryption. I'm sort of curious to hear what you felt signing up. What I wanted to do was approach it as someone who didn't actually know what a lot of this was because I have a feeling that the way they're presenting it and the way that they are... Marketing it is appealing to people within our community, within the world of computer science and technology. And a lot of people who see that won't necessarily know what it is they're signing up for 
or the implications of what it's doing for them. Um, some of them may see it as a way to prove that their Twitter account and their GitHub account are linked. I think there's a lot of different things it could maybe do for a person or right. convince them that it's doing for them. So I decided what I would do is sign up for it and just go through all the steps they ask me mm -hmm. to go through and just use all of the default everything. Yeah, it's, it's worth actually saying that we just went through describing GPG and PGP and encryption. Um, and if if you thought those metaphors and that uh, the sort of reasoning and workflow sounded difficult or complex, uh, that's nothing compared to the tools themselves, <laughs> which are just, uh, you know, the most <laughs> obtuse command line utilities you could really use. Well, and I think part of that may have been intentional at some point because Probably. they want to make sure that you know what you're doing and the effects of all the choices you make are known. Yeah, it really does require a, a dedicated amount of reading just to understand what, what you're doing. And I, I, every time I use GPG, I have to consult the man pages. And So I think that's part of what makes this entire product keybase mm. almost seem dangerous or at least leave someone feeling skeptical about it but one thing that we should mention as part of the default sign up flow and thus what i did in the process of signing up for keybase is i let them host my private key right one of the things that keybase does i just got through saying your private key needs to remain private otherwise the entire system doesn't work <laughs> right. And what I did instead was host it with the people who built one of the biggest dating websites and social networks on the internet. Yeah. So why did they do this? And I, I actually had a little exchange with one of the creators of Keybase. It was all encrypted, of course. Uh, and I sort of asked, you know, what's going on? When I signed up for Keybase, I put my public key on and I did not put my pri did not host my private key there. And you, you did the opposite, and they it's encouraged. Uh, and you can't use the web tools to their full extent without hosting your private key there. So what does Keybase.io do? They do encrypt the key. Uh, what they've built is something that they call TripleSec, which is a sort of a, a three-tier encryption scheme. And you can read about how they built it, everything like that. It's open source, so you know it seems like a legitimate way to encrypt something. They use that to encrypt your private key on the client side in your browser and then transmit that to store on the server. And there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt around JavaScript cryptography in the browser. Right. And it also just, in basic principle, seems counter to the values that this entire process yeah. promotes. And I guess that's what makes me feel strange about it and i should note that before i ever intend to use keybase with any real purpose i have every intention of revoking that key pair generating my own mm. hosting my private key myself and yeah. uploading my public key to keybase yeah and i th i think what the guys behind keybase will tell you is that you know look the tools are good enough that we feel confident in the encryption scheme that we use to encrypt the private keys and it's just reducing the barrier for a normal person to get involved and get interested enough in security. I think there's a very, very high barrier to entry um, when it comes to encryption. 
Um, and I think it's in everyone's interest to make that more clear, especially given the current political climate. But I mean, as you mentioned, like the idea of JavaScript in the browser being responsible for the cryptography that's happening. If a reporter is working with someone, how likely is it that that reporter is going to be using a computer at which they installed that browser? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I also think that you know you have to think that somewhere in a database now is your private key uh, in Virginia. As all data centers are in Virginia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, now it's in the hands of Keybase. So, you know, what happens if Keybase.io gets bought? What happens if it goes defunct? Uh, there's all these sort of open questions about what happens to this data that is, by its nature, the most sensitive. Is this essentially the same thing as people who chose to keep their Bitcoin wallets hosted online? Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, you know, um, I think a lot of people put their trust in MT Gox. Is it MT Gox or Mount Gox? I think Gox? it's Mount Gox. That's the Magic the Gathering online exchange. Also, previously the world's foremost Bitcoin exchange for all of your charging badger and Bitcoin <laughs> needs. You could go to Mount Gox. <laughs> charging badger, of course, is a one one badger type creature with trample <laughs> for green mana. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no comment. But it, it's the principles are the same: is that you're you're keeping something sensitive in in a place outside of your control. But you know, I I, I actually do think Keybase.io is really interesting and really does lower the barrier. I, I can't. I'm not ready to say it's a good or a bad thing yet. Um, I'm optimistic that it can sort of at least get people interested in thinking about the tools and thinking about the user experience of the tools. But one of the things that's interesting is this track feature, which is, you know, like, it's like you're following someone. <laughs> you follow someone on Twitter, you follow someone on Keybase, but it's actually not the same. And I think what a, what the track feature does is actually sign someone else's key. And they do mention that, that it's not like they're trying to hide that. Yeah, um, I, think, I think they make it very obvious. But going back to... What we were talking about, signing someone's key, is the equivalent of, you know, vouching for someone. And one thing I discovered when we signed up is that within a few hours after, you know, posting that public tweet, um, people that you and I know from the internet only, you know, great people, I like them a lot, had <laughs> tracked my Keybase account. But those people have never met me. They don't really know who I am. They yeah. might not know what I look like. I don't even use my photo on Twitter. I use a cartoon avatar. And it felt strange to get that notification they were tracking me because they had just signed the key of a person they'd never met, who they may have never seen a photo of, who had chosen to store his private key <laughs> in the cloud with Keybase. Yeah, it really erodes the whole web of trust thing. In 2014, is there such a thing as anonymity online? It seems like in order to create content on the internet, as we are wont to do, there has to be an identifier tied to that content. In most cases that we've seen in the last five years, if we want to find out who someone is and we put enough work into it, 
we've we've doxed, so to speak, so many people over the years. You know, there's been some way that someone has been discovered. Yeah. Even if they've been someone who's trying to not expose that tie to their real life persona. Uh, why the lucky stiff? Yeah. Maybe Satoshi soon. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. Dropping docs is not limited to the anonymous. It also happened to someone like Kathy Sierra, uh, who's really well known. It has a chilling effect beyond exposing someone's anonymity. And even something that people think of as anonymous, like Bitcoin, ultimately your wallet is your pseudonym. And the behavior of those multiple transactions might form a pattern that could be linked to you in some way. Um, and people have been talking about that, how that might help identify Satoshi in the end. People are watching the money in that wallet and waiting for it to move. Right. A lot of times people think they're anonymous, but ultimately it's just that people don't care enough. And we saw this in a discussion recently with Dana Boyd. I think we both read this article mm -hmm. where she talked about some interesting behavior that she had seen in her studies of teens using digital space where people almost silo their online behavior in a way that they don't necessarily tie some of their activity to other activities they make online. So the example that Dana Boyd gave was if a, a teen is a, a big fan of One Direction, they might not want that you know, behavior, which some might even find annoying, with people they know in real life. They might have a synonymous Tumblr account on which they profess their love for One Direction all day long, but never share that with anyone they know in real life. And they might have an Instagram account that they only share with people they know in real life and is totally One Direction free. In some ways, this is this is kind of clever. Like, the stakes are low enough that you can just keep that behavior in those different places, and it's not hard to do that. It's, you know, the behavior of Tumblr is pretty different from the behavior of Instagram. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to forget because you know that when you're on Tumblr, your username is XX Larry Chipper XX, and it's obvious to you what you should be doing with that identity. I think what was interesting about that article is, you know, she was talking about communities like Facebook or Google Plus, which are tied to your real name, and it's a big deal that it's tied to your real name, and how that that kind of model doesn't actually exist IRL. I am never in this in this sort of community space where I have to be sort of this all-encompassing. I can switch context from place to place. Uh, you know, with work, I'm professional. Here, recording the podcast, I am unprofessional. Very um, unprofessional, Mark. And that is natural. Anonymity almost falls out. When I'm just walking on the street, getting on the subway, I'm pretty much anonymous. I think we choose levels of anonymity based on the context that we're in. But if you, I guess if you're a celebrity or a politician, that's not easy. Yeah, well, and that's actually interesting, too, because there's been discussion online of the concept of a reputation economy and the idea that the value you can get from the things you do on the Internet comes from the reputation you create. In some ways, does that idea and the idea that what you do online is in in service of building a reputation, does it exist in conflict with the idea of anonymity or pseudonymity? I think we've seen some friends kind of struggle with this who mostly use pseudonyms and then 
found themselves building reputations online through their music or their writing, and they weren't sure how to reconcile claiming credit for that as a person with the fact that they had identified it with an identity that they didn't want associated with their person. Is it possible to feel driven to build the reputation of a pseudonym that is not who you think of as yourself, like your person? Like, if I start calling myself Leet Dude 47 mm-hmm. online <laughs> exclusively, I Gosh. get rid of all of my online identity mm-hmm. as Casey Colderup and start over from scratch. Yeah. And I'm Leet Dude 47. Is there something to be said for the idea that I wouldn't feel driven to build that reputation because I don't feel tied to that identity as closely as I do the name that I've had for my entire life? Like, does that, is there a conflict going on there? On the flip side, if you have a pseudonym and you are now trying to claim credit for it, what does that look like? Is it because that pseudonym, that identity is now getting monetary reward and value? Is it because Elite Dude 47 is now cool? Everybody wants to hang out with Elite Dude 47. I think it's interesting, and I think, you know, ultimately there is a human at the other end. Maybe. Thank you for listening to Abstract Factory. We really appreciate it. If you haven't yet subscribed to Abstract Factory, you can do so through iTunes. Or Stitcher. Or with our RSS feed available on the website, abstractfactory.tv. There will be a lot of links to the articles and projects we mentioned during the episode. It should be available as metadata on the episode you're listening to right now. If you can't find the metadata or the metadata was somehow corrupted you can get it on our website at abstractfactory.tv our music is thanks to our friends inky and voober check out their music if you have any questions comments or suggestions for future topics or just how mark and i should spend our time you can send us an email mark at abstractfactory.tv and casey at abstractfactory.tv and also if you're a fan of twitter you can follow us on there at Podcast Impl, I-M-P-L. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.